Well, good day, everybody, and welcome to the program on home health business critical regulation and policy focused on technology and in particular telehealth. I'm Bill Dombey. I'm the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice based in Washington, D.C. And we have a couple of really good experts with us today to talk about telehealth and where it sits in home health care, home care and hospice services. Uh, first, we, we have Carol Yarbrough. She is the business operations manager for telehealth resources at the University of California in San Francisco. Welcome, Carol. And along with her, we have Dan Lowenstein. Dan is the vice president for policy at one of the largest home health agency hospices and home care companies in the country, the Visiting Nurse Service of New York. Thank you, Dan, also for joining us. Thank you. So today what we're going to do is explore a number of things, but we kind of need to set a bit of context first because our audience may have a, a varying degree of knowledge of what type of telehealth services are provided in the home care setting by home health agencies and hospices. So, so Carol, you know, can you give us an idea of, of the, the nature and depth of telehealth services that are provided within a, a home health care and hospice type environment? Well, I'll go with the home health care first. Um, generally, the telehealth that can be provided can now be written into the plan of care for the service. It's not necessarily billed separately. And so um, as long as it's in the plan of care, the telehealth uh, supervision and, um, you know, check-ins can be done via telehealth at varying uh, intervals. Now, in terms of, um, and the same goes with remote physiological monitoring for home health as well. And that's something people are very interested in lately. Um, the, for, for hospice, um, telehealth is a great tool. Um, as long as you get added to the, uh, the, the panel of doctors or panel of providers that can see that patient during the hospice time, um, telehealth is very, um, you know, it's a great tool. You see the patients in their home or, or wherever they're, um, you know, residing at the time. And it provides a continuity of care for uh, perhaps an oncologist who had been following them or someone else. So it's, it's really beneficial. And as long as you get added or, you know, included in that plan of care team, these services are reimbursable. Well, thanks, Carolyn. Dan, Visiting Nurse Service of New York, has it adopted telehealth as part of its clinical services to its patient population? We have adopted uh, telehealth um, as, as part of that. Um, we do use remote patient monitoring and we do telehealth visits. Um, there is a, um, we, we, we really uh, started in earnest or, or really, it really accelerated during the height of the, uh, of the pandemic in New York last year. Um, we found it to be uh, very beneficial, um, particularly when it came to uh, preserving what was a very, uh, you know, a, 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 the preserving the, the workforce um, and making sure that it was really, um, really targeted there because we were having a, a tough time uh, with, the, with, with the workforce and we still are. And I know home care agencies around the country are. Um, it was also very important uh, to uh, ensuring that people had access to care. Um, uh, this is a time, um, and this still exists, uh, where you had um, you know, a, a lot of concern with people entering the home um, and making sure that people still got their services. 
um, while uh, you know with, without the, the fear of infection uh, was very important. And and lastly, we found that it was very um, it, it, people liked it. Um, satisfaction was high for the use of with the use of telehealth. Um, and uh, you know there was there's clearly there are protocols. It's you know we we. We have protocols about what we do use it for and what we don't use it for. It had to be something that the patient was uh, bought into. They had to be self-directing. Uh, there's a number of things that we put in place there, but overall, it's a, it's a very valuable tool. So from what I can tell, you know, clinical services plus, as Carol mentioned, some of the administrative supportive services and supervising staff in the home care setting. Any feel for the degree to which telehealth has been widespread in its adoption by home health care or hospice? providers of services. Carol? Uh, well, generally in San Francisco, um, in terms of what I know about from our hospice providers, um, that pretty much went to 100% um, in March of 2020. Um, Volume-wise, I, I couldn't quote those def definitively, but you know, in terms of the population, it was 100%. And currently we're back at around 80, 80, 20, 80, 20, uh, 75, 25, uh, with more leaning towards um, in-person visits and maybe around 25% telehealth, which and I think is kind of a statistic everyone's kind of experiencing right now. We, we at the National Association have done some surveying around this and we find that 60 to 70% of providers have actually adopted telehealth and it fluctuates, as you say, in San Francisco with the degree to which it's used in comparison to in-person visits. How about in the New York area, Dan? Not sure if I have, if I have the data on that. Um, I do know that you know one of the areas that you know really we're constrained by is the uh, structure of the benefit, though. Um, you know the way that uh, that Medicare reimburses for for care in the home is by visits. And if you don't have enough in-person visits, uh, you don't qualify for um, for a payment um, for a monthly peer, uh, pay, period payment, and that's of a disincentive to do more telehealth. So that is, you know, that there's kind of, kind of there's competing um, uh, issues there that, that make it, you know, probably more challenging and, and would uh, make it le less adaptable than it should be. So Medicare is a bit antiquated the way it deals with home health in terms of then recognizing the cost and reimbursing for the service. Carol, how about Medicare Advantage in your area? Are, are they paying for telehealth services for that Medicare patient? Are you having experiences there? Um, in terms, in generally, Medicare will cover everything that, or Medicare Advantage will cover everything that Medicare covers. So they tend to follow the same policies. Um, they are allowed, however, to cover more services than CMS allows Medicare. So um, certainly if it's in the population's interest within that payment area or that coverage area, they will um, amend the policy to reflect what is going on well, currently with the PHE. Um, they'll, they'll amend their policies to reflect you know, the better treatment for the greater good I do think, however, though, um, in terms of what Dan was saying about 
however many visits, and then you have to intersperse those with the telehealth visits and certainly the, I believe it's the RN supervision for these visits as well, or like the supervisor over, you know, the RNs that go, a certain percentage can only be done via telehealth. So I think this has more to do with regulatory than payer um, incentives. So hopefully, you know, with the any kind of upcoming regulations that are being considered by Congress, that this could change. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned something very important, which is, you know, Medicare Advantage plans have some flexibility. We have actually seen some plans pay for the telehealth virtual visits, not all of them, but it's within their discretion uh, to decide on whether to pay for it. Unlike as Dan said, Medicare, traditional Medicare doesn't recognize it within its payment model, creating a bit of a, a roadblock to the delivery of those services. Dan, Medicaid home care is very big in the state of New York. Where does telehealth fit into Medicaid there? Well, first of all, just and to pick up on what, what you and Carol were saying, yes, Medicare Advantage is a is more flexible in its in its payment and, and will allow you know more uh, more innovation in there. And Medicaid, you know, first of all, Medicaid is a smaller part. Uh, in, in New York, we are a managed care state when it comes to Medicaid. Um, that means that you know it's essentially the the managed care uh, plans have you know limited flexibility in what they can do, and generally they have been. Uh, um, they have not been tied to a per visit type of uh, in-person per visit arrangement. Um, so uh, that, and that's the majority of Medicaid is, you know, so it's just like any other managed care plan. You'd have, uh, you know, a Medicaid managed care. It could be an MA plan by the same sponsor. It could be a commercial plan by the same sponsor. So, so in that sense, it's been good. Um, there's a smaller Medicaid uh, um a smaller Medicaid uh, fee-for-service component um, just recently was uh, updated to reflect kind of the, the cost of delivering care, which is a very good thing. Um, uh, and, and, and generally they are, I think they're, 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 they're getting there when it comes to the use of, of telehealth. Okay. And Carol, in California, where, where you operate, uh, where, where does Medi-Cal, that's the name of their program there for Medicaid in the state, do, do they cover telehealth visits? Yeah, 100%, um, no matter where the patient is located or the beneficiary. In terms of, of home health, I have to admit to not being quite so up on the Medicaid requirements for that, for, for this area. Um, I did want to say, though, uh, in terms of managed care, we do have still some fee-for-service Medi-Cal and by I believe 2022, they plan on going fully over to managed care. And there's been a lot of meetings and a lot of contract ROIs uh, approaching that. So it'll be interesting to see what more services can be added once there are more capitated type plans managing the population. I'm sure more telehealth will come out of it. Let's shift a little bit to the, to the value uh, that telehealth may bring or, or not bring. You know, uh, you know, is, is it helping at all with staff shortages that we keep hearing are occurring with nurses, therapists, and, and home care aides? You know, is, is it a tool to be used for filling in that gap in terms of uh, the staff needs that are there? Dan, how about that? Sure, I can take that, yeah. Um, 
it, it really is. I mean, it does look. It does not um, discount the need for in-person care, um, and particularly in certain in, in some circumstances. Um, and that is, you know, I mean, there's, you know, and we actually developed um, a set of services that you know we believe you know could be delivered uh, by tele telehealth and those that you know really could. They could not. They needed you know uh, uh, an in-person. Uh, person to deliver, you know, uh, virtual uh, visits could include, you know, pain management, medication management, um, safety instructions, uh, hospital avoidance tactics, things where there's conversation there, um, you know, but started care admissions really, we believe should happen in the home. I mean, the home is the place where, I mean, th there's a reason for the home health benefit and that it is that the home is a special place. This is, you know, and, and the nurse that, that is in the home will get a sense of that person's environment, any risks involved um, that, you know, you could, you could try to emulate it via telehealth, um, but really um, you, you, you get a stronger sense of that uh, in the home. Now, in, in you were, I'm sorry, you were asking about uh, some of the, um, I think I went off topic a little bit there, but well, the I shortages. think you cover it, but specifically shortages, staff yeah. shortages. You know, New yeah. York and other places have fewer nurses than they need in all healthcare settings. It, it, is this helping uh, to address that? It does, and it can, and it can, and I think it has greater potential. And I want to talk about that, particularly in, in hard to serve communities. Um, you know, there, you know, a lot of communities that, that we're in, um, uh, it's hard to find staff to, to, to go into, into certain communities. And, and that's, that's unfortunate, uh, but it's true. Um, and, uh, and oftentimes there's the issue of patient refusal. Patients don't want to have somebody in the home. And, you know, for whatever reason that might be, but they still need care. Um, and I think that there's something there um, that would, you know, that helps to both, you know, provide the access of care that people need um, and provide, you know, as well as to provide, you know, allow staff to, you know, engage with the patient, even though they're not uh, in the home. Um, now, you know, that's, that, that requires a use of technology that some folks don't have. I mean, there's a lot of education that could be, so there's, I think that we're a long way from that being a universal access concept, but it is something I think that's worth exploring. Now, I follow up on that just a little bit. Does, does telehealth at all fit in as a value to, to address issues of health equity? It, yeah, again, it, it, it can. Um, if, it, if it can, if people have the, you know, the, you know they need an internet connection, um, they need, you know, a device could be their, you know, I mean, thanks to the PhD, it could be your home phone or computer. Um, you know, you know, if you are assuming that everybody has that, um, that is one thing. Not everybody does, um, but it can still it can help address issues of access um, uh, that you know in both in rural and urban and suburban communities that you know that, you know that that uh, that are hard to address by having somebody on the ground going into somebody's community and home. Uh, Carol, I remember when telehealth was kind of first introduced into home healthcare back in the '90s, maybe even even in the 80s, but mostly my experience was then in the 90s, and it was cumbersome equipment, and it was ending up putting a screen between the patient and, 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 and somebody else. You know, they were doing it in the home, doing, you know, some sort of uh, point of care, uh, communication with the physician's office, whatever. You know, wh where are patients today in their receptivity to telehealth services in the home? 
Um, certainly with devices that can be gotten more cheaply than say a very popular uh, handheld phone, not to mention <laughs> commercial devices, but um, you know, certainly something like a grand pad or you know, a, a, like a, a more intuitive type of um, device has been really helpful in reaching, for instance, geriatric populations. Um, and certainly, um, you know, everyone does FaceTime with their families. We've been so spread apart uh, due to, you know, preferences in climate or jobs or what have you. The FaceTime really has become the, the norm and has been used, I believe, FaceTime or Skype um, during the PHE uh, as an allowed non-HIPAA compliant device, but certainly allowed um, to allow people that can't afford encrypted video to be used for telehealth. But getting back to the, the devices geared towards healthcare encounters or simple, I want to talk to my, my daughter or I want to talk to my grandson or my nephew, um, people are very receptive of the devices. And um, certainly I've, I've talked to a couple of innovators, uh, you know, students who want to develop things for smart TVs and have that kind of thing be integrated. I don't know if I'd want my PHI um, being broadcast over a smart TV, but because um, I think they're watching what we're watching. Uh, but, um, you know, certainly people just, they, they love it. They do love it. So let, let's, let's talk about, you know, what's in the way of taking advantage of this you know, innovative technologies and telehealth, because obviously it sounds to me like it's a, a positive advance that we've seen over some recent times of bringing a variety of values and stakeholders pretty much across the board, you know, get some value out of it. Well, what, what are the barriers that we see up there? And Dan, you specialize in policy issues, you know, as, as that vice president for policy for VNSY, what, what are the policy roadblocks that are there? Well, you know, we saw some interesting things happen during the public health emergency with the, you know, waivers on, on you know, that really expanded the use of telehealth um, in doctor's offices um, with, uh, with uh, behavioral health. Um, uh, you know, there was, there were, you know, lots of, lots of restrictions were eased. Um, and that was, you know, we are hoping and seeing that, you know, some of that could be made permanent. We hope it is. The one thing that was not um, really addressed, well, there might've been other things, but you know, one thing that really wasn't addressed was in the home health benefit um, that you know, it, while docs, you know, while there's uh, doctors are allowed to do telehealth and, and nurse practitioners and behavioral health providers and hospice, you know, the home care was really kind of like left out of the equation. And you, know, you would think that given uh, you know, how important care in the home was, and the you know and, and the issues of staffing and and preventing infection that there would be a, a little bit more attention paid there and you know we're hopeful um, certainly CMS made some good strides by you know allow you know by allowing it to be included as an administrative cost that's certainly a good thing but it the the impact that I talked about earlier where it really kind of runs up against um, the the whole home health benefit um, and if you use it too much. You risk not getting paid, even though you're providing, you know, a level of care that you know that is necessary for that patient. 
you know, we're hoping that, uh, and I know that there's, you know, there's legislation to, to do this, um, the HEAT Act, um, which would, would, would hopefully, uh, um, all, you know, essentially require CMS to develop a, a reimbursement mechanism for uh, home care uh, telehealth services. Um, we think that uh, that's a great step and, you know, anything that will help bring home care, you know, into the 21st century and uh, uh, give parity alongside other healthcare providers would be very useful. Yeah, it would seem pretty uh, apparent that if you're not getting paid for something, if you're not getting your cost even covered, that would be uh, a barrier to, uh, you know, people engaging in it, embracing it even in that way. Carol, are there other, other barriers there? Anything from the patient side or the staff side uh, that might be uh, something that, you know, we can deal with to get, you know, get, get, get the service more uh, appropriately uh, used in, in the home care setting? Well, I, I do want to go back to the issue of health equity. Um, certainly what Dan was saying about assuming people have broadband, assuming they have internet connections, assuming they have all this stuff. Um, you know, not everybody has the money or even the inclination to have a smartphone or to be connected or, um, you know, certainly in terms of the telehealth programs that we've been overseeing at UCSF, we now have, um, you know, interpretation services have been very widely vetted and included in every telehealth encounter where it's needed. Um, the website that we have that's patient facing has, I think, 14 languages um, so that people of different backgrounds and ethnicities and, you know, orientations can feel comfortable contacting a provider. And a lot of this, um, I think, is overlooked when people say, oh, everybody's just going to go for that. Well, culturally, maybe it's not appropriate for that patient to want to do that. You know, how do we address the cultural aspects of someone wanting to participate in a telehealth visit? Um, the language aspects. Uh, and I want to say primarily the, the monetary. I mean, if if you know, everybody felt secure about going on the internet um, within a city, within an urban area, like I probably would not log on to the free Wi-Fi in downtown San Francisco because of hackers. Um, but, you know, if there were a healthcare network or something that could be provided by municipalities or by the federal government, that would be really cool. Uh, yeah, you pointed out, you know, pretty important thing to using telehealth is you have to have good, solid internet connection. And, and notoriously, rural areas do not have the broadband availability, but that even happens in a city. Uh, you know, the, the, the availability of it may be uh, overused or it may be uh, such that buildings block it uh, in terms of an actual approach. And then, of course, you know, where, where does the hardware come from? You know, is it someone's phone that they're using themselves or is it equipment provided by the supplier of the services being presented? You know, one question that, you know, I'd like to explore a little further too is, is the staff itself. Is there you know, any special need for training of the staff to work with uh, doing a telehealth visit or, or, or do people just naturally take to it? Carol? I'll answer that first since I was like, huh. Um, definitely the, the front desk staff and the, your, the front 
facing staff is probably our most important um, entity or most important asset that you want to train and make comfortable because their level of comfort is going to transfer to the patient. And so, you know, from the bottom up, everyone talks about the MDs or the NPs or the PAs, but really it's that person that's calling the patient and saying, hey, we want you to do a video visit and this is how you log on and do you have this equipment and do you not? Their level of ease in speaking the language of how to do this and guiding patients through it really is essential. So training, training is a big deal. Well, you know, I, I always think of telehealth as a, a tool rather than a service. And, you know, invariably, my mind then goes to the workshop down in the basement of my house here where I, I do woodworking. I, I, I don't have great skill, but I'll build furniture and I'll build other kinds of things. But I've got all these great tools, but I, I don't think I have the tool talent to really make full use of those kinds of tools. Uh, and I can see telehealth in a similar capacity. So we likely see as more and more adoption and use and payment for the telehealth that we're going to need to have some specialty training for the staff that are utilizing the services. Now, Dan, I want to segue over to you. You mentioned uh, something called the HEAT Act, you know, when talking about some of the barriers of reimbursement. What, what is the attitude you see in Congress now towards telehealth? Is it favorable? Uh, is it cautious or unfavorable? I think it has to be taken into the larger context of uh, of how are we caring for vulnerable individuals, um, you know, given the pandemic, uh, given the population, you know, in, in a, a population that's aging and getting more more frail. And uh, you know, I mean, we have we have a we have a real crisis. I mean, it, it, there's no way to, to around it. And you know, the I think Congress is starting to wake up to the fact that we need to put money into home-based services. That's what um, it's called the Better Care, Better Jobs Act is intended to do, put a lot of money into ensuring that people have access to care in the home and that, and, and that we have a workforce that's adequately compensated to provide that care. That's, just, that's one step. Um, there's another really excellent piece of legislation uh, nicknamed Choose Home, um, which is essentially uh, uh, a piece of legislation that would allow people who would no would normally get their post-hospital care in a skilled nursing facility, um, but could be cared for in the home, except for they don't have that caregiving support, right? So this would allow uh, a home health agency to, uh, to, to care for that patient with the appropriate personal care services, uh, home care services, um, and, uh, and would probably save the system a lot of money and would be uh, if the patient chose it, it's basically a, a patient choice initiative. So something that the patient wants, probably something that will prevent, uh, you know, uh, an infection from congregate care settings, uh, all, to, all together a really positive move towards care in the home. Care is gonna happen in the home more and more. I mean, and we, I think we have to recognize that, you know, both from a public health standpoint and just a, uh, a practical standpoint. And we have to have both the technology, the payment systems, um, and the resource, the, the staffing resources to make it happen. Well, you know, I, I think that's been a great capsulizing of some of the advocacy efforts ongoing. And for those who want to learn some more about these advocacy efforts, uh, I'll give my own promo. Go to our website at nahc. 
choosehome.org. That's National Association for Homecare.org. And you can get information about Choose Home, about the HEAT Act, and further information. There's another bill out there that's kind of widespread on a telehealth called the Connect Act. Uh, and something you, know, you could all get engaged and help move. Uh, my, my, my pitch is always that noise matters in Washington and noise is what you otherwise define as grassroots support. So we've only got a couple of minutes left here. So I wanted to get your, your, your kind of like two sentence view uh, of, of what the outlook is for telehealth in the home setting, your forecast. You know, you, you're, you're out there now forecasting, not the weather, but your forecast for removing some of these barriers and, and improving the ability to use telehealth services. Uh, Carol, what about you? What, are, are you an optimist or a pessimist or the, just very practical about things? Uh, I'm an optimist uh, in this respect. I am stealing a line from a presentation I saw approximately a month ago where the presenter said, uh, we need to approach this as caregivers and policymakers in light of the most important customers ourselves because one day we're gonna need that home health care and we're gonna need those, those opportunities that maybe aren't important to us right now, but in terms of uh, things like aging in place and moving more towards um, home-based care, which it seems like things are going. Yeah, and, and if people, if people uh, adopt that viewpoint, I suspect yeah. telehealth has a pretty positive future. Dan, how about you in terms of your outlook? Thanks, Bill. And first of all, I want to I want to put a plug in for you and for really for catalyzing uh, the the advocacy and the work in Washington and the industry around these really important issues and this really important legislation. Choose home. All right. So um, with that, um, I want to say. Um, so I I think that first of all, it's it's never going to replace in home care, nor should it. Um, and but we have to be, I think, practical and realistic that growing population, shortage of workforce to serve them. So the, the use of those human resources at the highest and best use is, is critical. And that is gonna necessitate uh, a more um, a progressive and functional uh, telehealth policy and payment system. Uh, it, it just has to. Well, thank you, Dan. And, and I wanna thank you both. Uh, we've reached the end of our time here. And, you know, hopefully the audience walks away much more knowing than, than they were when they started. So I want to thank Dan Lowenstein from the Visiting Nurse Service of New York and Carol Yarborough uh, from the University of California in San Francisco. And thank you for your time listening to us today. Take care now. Thank you.